Welcome to Hit Subscribe, a podcast by Recharge designed to educate, inspire, and connect the subscription commerce space. Highlighting stories from subscription brands, top design and development agencies, e-commerce platforms, best-in-class technology vendors, and insider tips from the brightest minds at Recharge, Hit Subscribe is your place for subscription insights and best practices. Greg, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So today's going to be a really interesting episode, um, first and foremost, because you've been in the industry for so long, the subscription industry. So so that's actually where we want to start. So give us an intro about yourself and about Myro, um, and then we'll kind of hop into to your experience from subscri- in a subscription mindset. Cool. Yeah, so I've been uh, <laughs> I've been doing this for quite some time, uh, which is uh, both a blessing and a curse, I guess. Um, so my I, I first got into this uh, back in uh, 2007, 2008 days when the financial crisis was was hitting, and I was the guy selling uh, credit score subscriptions. So this was a, <laughs> a lot of fun. If you remember those days, everybody was looking for a credit score. So this was quite an explosive uh, explosive growth. So got my uh, cut my teeth in a personal finance subscription program, uh, starting out with again those credit monitoring services, which was a lot of fun. Um, from there, I moved on into more of a direct to consumer play. So I ran growth for um, a wine subscription company called Lot 18, uh, which is again, you, you get the theme there. And then from there, uh, moved on to running growth for a meal kit, which is another super explosive category, which I'm sure you know everybody <laughs> certainly listening to this uh, podcast knows. Um, so you know a lot more of the same, a lot of subscription dynamics. Uh, although obviously there's a, a bunch of other kind of direct consumer and brand growth stuff mixed in. And then uh, after that, uh, Myro. So uh, so founded Myro. Uh, what is it? Two years ago or so. Um, we're really the goal of kind of trying to reinvent a very stale category. So what we do is we're building a sustainable body care brand um, and the subscription and the kind of direct-to-consumer kind of core tenants are very much a big part of it because uh, to be able to, to, I would say, revolutionize is probably a little bit of a heavy term, but to disrupt uh, a category with products like deodorant, like body wash, that have been around for multiple decades, you have to do things differently. You just have to, because uh, our friends in big multinationals have spent and still spending a lot of money uh, with a lot of ideas. So you got to be different. And uh, uh, what Myro is, is a very different take that we think is just a better way of kind of doing those products. And uh, being kind of a direct-to-consumer subscription brand is actually a very strategic kind of core part of that value proposition by design. Because fundamentally, what we're trying to do is reduce waste. And guess what? Uh, if you can ship somebody products in bundles, as opposed to having you go to a store every single time and toss an item, it is much more environmentally friendly. So, uh, so we're pretty excited about what we're doing. And um, you know, given that this is a recharge podcast uh, <laughs> and everything about subscription, uh, we're we're you know very happy that this like very idea is is very core to the business. You can host the podcast from here on out. You just kind of hit on everything I want to talk about. So, so that's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, nice, nice meeting you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take this all the way back. Actually, I want to go to go through your experience kind of one by one. So, selling credit score on a subscription—that's such an interesting business. 
And if I can, you can kind of relate it to what everyone's going through with COVID right now, where everyone's kind of panicking. There's a big boom. There's a lot of opportunity going on, but no one quite really understands what's going on. So where do you see similarities and where do you maybe see differences in kind of taking advantage of something that's out of your control and just kind of making the best of it between, you know, selling the credit scores in 2008 when the market crashed versus what's going on now? Yeah. So I think that um, having gone through that experience, kind of, I would equate selling credit scores in sort of 2008 the same way as uh, you know selling paper towels in April of last year. It was just, I mean, it was just an unfair fight. Uh, it's, it's like, I mean, it's literally just that. It's kind of like you know shooting fish in a barrel because you're back in 2008 uh, when obviously the crisis was all about finances and you know all of the headlines were about you know personal finances and debt. The, everybody was going after credit scores and understanding what that is. And people were just sort of coming to realize that that is a big factor that was playing behind the scenes in their financial life. I would say that just judging from an experience, uh, having lived through COVID in you know beginning of this year, uh, kind of being situated in New York City, uh, the paper towel phenomena and the toilet paper phenomena feels absolutely the same. All of a sudden, people discovered a dying need to get all of those products in enormous quantities like now. Um, so, you know, if you had a warehouse full of uh, paper towels, you probably did okay. Um, but, I, but I think on a, on a more kind of serious business note, um, I think what I kind of took from that experience is certainly having lived through and still living through COVID, um, the reality is that uh, anytime you have a crisis, right, there's uh, winners and losers um, that just happen to come out as part of the crisis. And, uh, you know, it's not uh, good or bad, and you can never tell which where you will end up. It, it just sort of is, right? The, 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 the world shakes out as it shakes out. Um, so, you know, specifically some of the learnings that I've sort of applied, uh, having seen that movie before is very early during the COVID times, uh, it wasn't really obvious kind of where we'll end up. Like it really was not, um, because we're in the business of personal care products, right? So the going assumption was that, you know, people aren't going to stop, you know, using personal care. It's just, that's just not a thing. So no matter how deep the crisis is, no matter how you know how much financially it hurts, uh, there's still going to be strong demand for these type of products, uh, and that played out to be very much true. So we're happy about that. Um, I think what uh, we also learned, and one of the sort of uh, one of the things that I've I've seen before is that as the kind of situation evolves, um, there's new aspects that come out that are not so obvious. So back in the credit score days, the way that it kind of played out is that all of this pressure and education around credit monitoring actually led Congress to launch its own, you know, something called annualcreditreport.com or whatever, .org, I can't remember. But basically, the government launched their own website. And Although initially all of that demand worked really, really well for the business, when the government stepped in heavy handed and basically gave somebody like a sneak peek for free, it had a very opposite effect. And that whole dynamic was not obvious. And I think with, you know, again, having seen that movie before with COVID, um, we were definitely at Myro sort of expecting that, hey, like we can probably figure out, you know, how the world looks um, you know, Q1, Q2 of 2020, but understanding what that other shoe is going to be in Q3, Q4 was just impossible. So we sort of, you know, our reaction was to basically, you know, go back to the basics, um, do things, focus on things that we do well, uh, put anything aside that we do not do well, and just kind of wait for that longer term effect. Because 
I, I've seen it before. It was obvious that something was going to happen. We just didn't know what. That's really well said. Uh, we were in a couple meetings yesterday with our sales team talking about kind of a, a motto that we're using moving forward, which um, I forget who, who was that was quoting it, but um, being, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it works really well in situations like these where the people who seem to be doing well during COVID and the companies who are doing well are the ones who are comfortable being pushed and being in random situations. And it feels like Myro is right in that category. You know, you had, like you said, you'd seen this movie before you knew something was going to happen. You just didn't quite know what it was. So being able to kind of pull your resources in, make sure you're prepared and ready. It seems like that, that went really well. That's right. That's right. I think I, I always keep thinking about this uh, infamous, uh, I think it's a Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so, I mean, the reality is that as a, as a business, you need to have a plan, right? And then you just need to expect that you're going to get punched in the face uh, and that the plan will have to change and you're going to come up with another plan and probably get punched again. That That is just the the dance that you need to play. And, and that's okay. Um, I, you know, we've certainly... We've certainly taken that approach, and uh, you know some things we got right, some things we got wrong. I mean, it's, it's sort of inevitable because nobody can predict the future. Um, but I think the the overall mentality of understanding that there's there's always going to be ambiguity, and you're lying to yourself if you think you've got it figured out. So you just need to stay nimble and kind of do your best. And uh, you know, uh, there's a very specific things that you kind of do being a D2C business to you know to execute on that uh, philosophy. Exactly. Spot on. So let's take one step further into the future now and talk about your, your lot 18. So wine subscription, this is still early. So this is still not when people were really comfortable buying wine and food and all these things online. How did taking that D to C shift and go from, instead of selling a digital product, now you're selling an actual product. How did that kind of play into the future of Myro as well? Uh, so <laughs> a very, very interesting transition. Um, so first of all, I have to admit, I knew nothing about wine going into this, like absolutely nothing. And a funny story. So on the first day uh, when I walked in, the company had, uh, you know, obviously a lot of wine people with like very heavy knowledge. And there was a sommelier that was working uh, for Lot 18 and uh, she was doing sort of like an orientation. It was me and I think two other people. And um, on the very first day, she basically took out, you know, two bottles of wine blinded and she poured you know, one bottle into one glass, the other one into the other, and basically, you know, had us try it and, and then asked, like, which one do you think is $20 and which one do you think is $1,000? And of course, we got it wrong. Like, that was the point of the exercise. Um, so I guess uh, what that little <laughs> experience taught me on day one is that, um, you know, physical product is different because the consumer gets to experience that physical product and there's the sensory touch and feel kind of component to it. And that touch and feel component to it needs to really, really work well with whatever you thought you're getting. And like this idea of sort of connecting your expectation with a physical product payoff is really, really important in the world of selling something that is non-digital because in the digital land, the reality is that you kind of know what you get. It's sort of pretty cut and dry, uh, right? You, you wanted to see a credit score, you saw a credit score, you move on, right? With wine, if you're thinking that you're buying an XYZ Chardonnay from, you know, XYZ sommelier grown somewhere over the years, you know, yada, 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 and you get this thing and you hate it, <laughs> it's game over. So, so I think the biggest lesson was that expectation to pay off needs to be like crisp. If it's not, you're in trouble. So the way we refer to that internally recharge is that's your unboxing experience. 
So it's, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people are missing about not being able to walk through a mall and, you know, touch and hold, you know, a, a pair of shoes, whatever it is, a shirt that you're putting on is that you can go online and you can buy whatever it is you want. And you can have this expectation of like, this is exactly what I need. But when it gets shipped to your house and you actually open it, that has to sink. That has to yes. be the experience that you're looking for. And that's what a lot of people miss out on actually, is that just because you have a product and you think you have a really good product, what you think and what the customer thinks are different things. And those need to line up to be successful. That's right. That's right. And uh, that, that's that's exactly a great way of kind of manifesting that, that thought. I mean, I think the... The way that we've sort of thought about it, uh, the way that I've thought about it over the years is that, you know, the the business question is how do you sort of take that insight and what do you do with it, right? And the way that we've always, the way that I've sort of internalized that idea is that when you think about your product experience, when you think about your sales experience, it needs to really be broken out into chunks, right? And the first chunk is this, like the sales chunk that's pretty clear. You got to get, you know, credit card and file people in the door. The second chunk is this, you know, onboarding experience, unboxing, whatever you want to call it, right? Like this mo moment of truth, right? Yep. But then there's a third chunk, which is once you've unboxed that shoe and it actually meets your expectation, how do you make sure that, you know, that shoe you know, continues to meet that expectation, you know, multiple months, quarters, or years, whatever is your life cycle, right, afterwards. That is like the third chunk, which is a whole other can of worms that also needs to be thought about just in a distinct way. So so the magic to, you know, a lot of the kind of these subscription businesses, and Myra certainly isn't any different, is really dissecting and optimizing um, this, you know, this entire funnel, right? The, the, the initial exposure, the sale, the onboarding, and then the kind of the post onboarding and, and it's hard. It, it's really, literally hard to get it right. But when you do, it's magical. So I'm going to ask you a really generic question and let you run with it. Cause I don't want to have any kind of <laughs> questions here, but how do you do that? How do you take your data and essentially massage it and figure out this works, this doesn't work. Maybe we should try that. And, and how does that apply to, to the future and making sure people come back and, and reorder? Yeah, so that's that's a million dollar question all the time, right? So I, I don't profess to have all the answers, but I could certainly tell you kind of how I've approached it over the years and certainly what we do at Miro and by no stretch of imagination, I'm implying that we've got it solved. Um, I mean, I think um, in many respects, right, it starts. It starts with the basics. The first thing is you. You gotta know. You gotta have the data. Like it, it's pretty basic. I know. I know. We talk about it, and there's like countless webinars that I get emails about Make data sure this and data, data that. You're talking um, data. You gotta have data, but like it's not. It's not. It's like just plugging in Google Analytics or whatever warehouse you're using, and then swimming and the gazillion reports that you know nothing about. Like that doesn't help. That's not the data that I'm talking about. I'm talking about having data that actually maps against that life cycle. Like if you think about, again, that life cycle in three stages, sale, onboarding, post onboarding, like having specific KPIs or whatever measurements are relevant to you around each one of those key distinct areas of consumer journey. So getting that and getting that in a way that you believe, it doesn't, you know, it's almost like it doesn't need to be, you know, 100% accurate because I've, I know I went down million rabbit holes where you just see something off and it's like, why is it happening? And you just don't trust the data. What, what I've sort of learned over the years is that, you know, you're never going to get it perfect and that's okay, uh, but it needs to be consistent. Like it just needs to be consistent and believable. You need to trust the fact that you may not actually know, you know, for example, whether you can have a Facebook, uh, whether your Facebook pixel will actually match the Google Analytics pixel. 
it doesn't matter as long as they're off by the same amount every single time, that's good enough, right? So it starts, so step one in this whole journey is just figuring out a set of kind of data packs or, you know, like a set of KPIs and obviously believe in these KPIs is that you can sort of rely on consistently. So once you have that, like once you have that figured out, I think it's a matter of understanding, and this is where you kind of get into the world of consumer insights meets kind of data science. You need to figure out which one of these KPIs you care about versus the customer cares about. So like, I'll give you an example. Um, and there's a, there's a couple of these that are kind of floating around in the marketing universe, but I think there's a well-known case study where at some point during Netflix's early days, they figured out that if you watch, I forget the exact metric, but it's something like if you watch a movie within the first 30, like 36 hours, then you're going to be a great customer, right? It's not, doesn't happen all the time, but it's a good proxy. So every business that I've seen has something like that. We have something like that. Like to us, um, the, that magic metric is essentially engagement of you playing around with your sense selection. Um, so I guess the way that it comes into, into this whole journey is that once you have the KPIs, you need to figure out which KPIs are kind of like, you know, table stakes, right? You know, basic CAC, like basic stuff like that. And which KPIs are actually needle movers that is they're not necessarily like you, it's very hard to like just move that KPI by itself, but they are proxies for you improving the experience, which then gives you an indication that you're doing something right and therefore move people along that journey. So I think figuring out it's easier said than done. It's really complicated to understand what it really is for your business because it does take, you know, a lot of, uh, I would say, very uncomfortable conversations. Uh, you know, uh, like a lot of people like myself are love to geek out over spreadsheets, but it's a very different skill set to like call up a bunch of customers and just ask them. Like it's just, it's just, it's just different. Um, so figuring out and teasing out like what these magic moments are and how do you see them in the numbers that you love. Is, is complicated. But once you have that, then you kind of know, okay, well, I know, you know what my sort of journey looks like. I understand what numbers to look for. I understand what these magic proxies for, you know, identifying customer success at each stage is. So then you go into the hard part and start generating ideas around, well, you know, how can you move these proxies to be better, to be higher, or, you know, whatever is the direction of the metric you're tracking. So it, it really kind of, you know, it starts in a sort of in a very, the idea is very simple, right? Figure out what you want and then optimize off of it. But obviously doing it is really, really difficult. Um, and then navigating, you know, everything comes along with obviously unlimited information. And uh, again, this uh, uncomfortable combination of consumer insight and just stitching it to like, you know, GA data or your database data is the complex piece. But if you can figure out a system where you have a team or, or a, a people or you know a data set or a process that gives you an ability to look at these things, to look at this whole journey on an ongoing basis, um, and then treat your projects against that journey, I think what you will see very quickly is that you start to get a feel for what types of areas and projects and improvements move the needle. And that's what you do to improve acquisition, retention, you know, life's, uh, lifetime value, and kind of all of the, you know, financial KPIs that come out of that. That was a long answer. <laughs> Hopefully you're going to lose me halfway. So just a really quick, simple equation is all you're looking for here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's just, uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I had never heard that Netflix case study. There, there's a Twitter one that I heard that was something like, if you, if you follow 20 people within your first week, 
you're it's like 98% retention. Like if you use yeah. the platform, it's you know it's very directional that you're gonna get to where you need to go. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's there's a couple of these out there. This episode is brought to you by the State of Subscription Commerce Report. 2020 came with many challenges, but also many opportunities. This year's report illuminates the boom in e-commerce in 2020 and provides valuable insights and takeaways for subscription merchants. Download the report at rechargepayments.com slash annual report. So you use a lot of, of really cool words and really cool analogies that aren't buzzwords, which is my favorite part of this whole thing. You know, every time people talk data, it's, you know, you got to do this and you have to make sure that CSC is on point. And then you have higher lifetime value and it just looks so simple. Um, so how, how do you take that balance of the super long customer journey and all of this data and weave all of that in to essentially say, Hey, we're going to try, you know, this, this, and this thing, we're going to try these three things and give it a month or two months and see what happens to our LTV or see what happens to our retention or see what happens to our CAC. And then really try to dial in and say, okay, that one worked, that one didn't. Like, let's lean into this more. Let's not lean into that more. Does that does that factor into product development? Does that factor into marketing, or is it just all of the above? How does how do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I know what the right answer is. The right answer is it factors into everything, right? You're supposed to, if you again, if you read all these product management books. Uh, you know, you're supposed to just sort of like, you know, look at everything and treat everything through that lens. But the reality is that it's much more complicated um, because, you know, every day is messy, right? And you have things that are outside of your control. So I would say that my approach has really been, it starts with discipline, right? It starts with just, you know, you got to get started somewhere. And especially if you have a new business and you're just getting going and a lot of these things are unknown, um, you got to start with things that you sort of understand or you have a good hypothesis on, and then you move down kind of this, this journey as you get better and better understanding. And the discipline really comes in being able to, you know, figure out as you make changes or as you improve your website experience, your product experience, whatever it is that you're working on, um, just be disciplined about asking yourself a question of like, what are you trying to do with this change? It sounds very simple, but it's actually you know very powerful because if you know, I'll give you an example. Like if you know that you're you're making an adjustment, let's say to the site because uh, you know you feel like there's a, a better way of you know a better checkout button or something like that. Yeah. I think asking yourself a question of okay, well if I do this, what is it gonna do? Like is it gonna move my click through rate? Is it gonna move my conversion rate? Does it improve some awareness metric? Like what is it gonna do? And what that discipline really allows you to do is just get into the mode of trying to understand a which metrics matter and which ones don't and it gets you and your team talking about things that ultimately move the needle so so i would say that again there's no magic formula um it's this stuff is compl complicated and every business and every site and every experience is different but but i think getting into the discipline of understanding you know, what what is the expected change going to actually do that gets the conversation started and it tends to get you to the right place so i want to double click on that for just a second because i was actually going to ask you a question about bias because a lot of data comes with you know oh i think this is going to happen you try to make the data fit that so it sounds like you're doing it in a way where you look at the data first and then you make your hypothesis and you say if we change this button here's what it's going to do and then you test against that hypothesis and against the data where it seems like most companies and most people will do you know hey i think changing this button is going to improve click-through rate let's try it without any kind of baseline, without any kind of data, without any kind of knowledge of what happened in the past and where you're going. So it's you're, you're kind of taking even more data approach in that way. 
we, we try to. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, I, 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 I'll, I mean, we're definitely look. The, the reality is that every day is messy, and you have different things. But we try. We certainly try to a understand historical perspective. If we've already, so I'll give you exa- again a good example. So let me kind of maybe set up the stage on how Miro subscription works, and then I'll, I'll explain how this fits into your question. So. Yeah. The way that uh, Myra works is that a consumer comes to the website, they purchase something called a starter kit, which contains basically a permanent vessel and then a first pod of deodorant, which you get to assemble at home. Um, from there, on day 30, every every consumer gets a, what we call a refill, which is basically a bundle pack of four different scents. And in between the your day zero of subscribing and your first refill, you have kind of all of this experience around trying the product, experiencing the product, giving us feedback on the scent and kind of all of that stuff. So, uh, so that's the backdrop, right? Now, going back to the Netflix example, what we care a lot and we sort of, what we learned is that that engagement within these 30 days is really, really important. The more you engage, the better retention you're going to have. Um, so the way that kind of this change testing and kind of change, you know, this basic question of, uh, you know, like asking yourself a question before making a change comes into play is that if we know, let's say that we want to make it, it, it we think that um, there is a dramatic improvement to be had by optimizing the UI of the, let's say, post-payable flow, and we want to prioritize a particular action, therefore place a certain module on, let's say, the homepage when you log in. Okay, sound hypothesis, we understand why we're doing it, presumably there's some, you know, whatever, heat map that tells us something is working or not. Well, the first thing that we should do is look at what we've done before, if we've done anything, and see if making the change in the past has done much, right? Maybe it makes things better, maybe it makes things worse, right? Sometimes you have the information, sometimes you don't. Let's say you don't have the information. Okay, so you're kind of out of luck, right? So if you don't have the information, the next step is to say, okay, well, we still want to make that change because we think it'll be better. Let's just understand like, what is it going to, like, what what will actually happen? What do we think will happen? And that's, that is that basic kind of exercise that I was referring to, because you should, you sit down with your engineer, with your product team, marketing, whoever is sort of you know at the table, and basically ask, okay, we're gonna make that change. Is my active rate gonna go up? Is my cancel rate gonna go down? Is my engagement gonna go up? Is it gonna be all of it? I don't know, but let's take a guess which one it is, and then let's just understand where we are now and where what we think we're gonna be. So the very fact that you're doing that type of basic question will then allow you post-mortem once you've already you know, made the change and looked at the results and it could have been a wild success or a complete disaster. But the very fact that you've taken a stab at understanding what you thought would move versus what actually moved gives you better insight as to what to do next. Because if you thought that, let's say, your you know, engagement rate is going to go through the roof because you're putting this wonderful module, but in reality, nothing happened to the engagement rate, but your cancel rate went down. It's a fantastic outcome, but something different happened. So maybe you should be optimizing something differently. Like that's, so that's the type of thinking that you're going for. Um, Again, you know, you, the reality is that you don't have all the information, right? And that's okay. But I think the discipline of just understanding what will actually happen, what do you intend to happen goes a very long way in kind of unearthing that entire journey. So again, if you do the work up front and you can plan what you're trying to maneuver and what you're trying yep. to manipulate on the back end, it's a lot less work because you're only measuring a handful of things rather than, you know, let's see what happened across the whole site. That's right. 
That's right. It, it all, it, it's a lot less work. It tends to be a lot more enlightening. And you you tend to, I mean, if you do that a few times, you, you tend to get a very sharp understanding of things that actually matter versus things that do not matter. And you kind of stop working on things that do not matter, which in my experience is probably 90% of it. The same metrics start to become top of mind and you start yep. to figure, okay, maybe it's exactly. three that we need to focus on rather than 30 metrics. Exactly. Exactly. That's the That's the goal. Let's shift gears really quickly and talk about sustainability. I know Myro has an awesome mission about sustainability um, and with Earth Day coming up, I know that that's probably very top of mind for you and the company. It is. Um, talk a little bit about uh, what, what sustainability means to you and the company and why Earth Day is such a big day for you. Yeah, um, so so we built Myro um, and uh, we founded Myro and certainly still still building it uh, based on the kind of key, three key uh, consumer value propositions. Uh, the first one is we just wanted to develop formulations that are better for you. So like no boogeyman ingredients, nothing like that. Um, the second one is we fundamentally believe that there is a, we can develop better packaging that is better for everybody else, right? And we have a very specific point of view. And the third is that we just want the products to be sexy. So the combination of better for you, better for everybody else, and sexy is sort of the magic sauce behind, behind the brand. Um, so the way that we're thinking about sustainability is that it's an important component of this kind of trifecta. It's not the only component, but it's a very foundational one uh, because the consumers that we're speaking to and certainly kind of the way that the trends are evolving, it, it's, it's a no-brainer. It just becomes a, a no-brainer. So our point of view on sustainability is that we want to develop products that reduce plastic waste by some material meaningful amount. Um, you know, deodorant, for example, is 50%, um, but get mass adoption. And the what what's interesting is that there's quite frequently a conflict between sort of this idea of sustainability of like most sustainable versus well adopted. Um, because when you think about it in a spectrum, right? Um, if you build a product that is the most sustainable thing ever but it blows somebody's mind to use it because it's either unfamiliar or it's too different or it's too complicated, you're going to get three really passionate people who are going to use it, but that's really it. On the flip side, right, if you don't do anything and you sort of sell a product that people are used to, you're going to get a lot of adoption, but it doesn't do anything for sustainability. So what we're trying to calibrate all the time is where do we want to be on that spectrum? Uh, because the answer is probably not either, you know, sides. It's probably not the, you know, the left or the right. It's probably somewhere in the middle. And our perspective is that um, we've built a kind of deodorant product around this idea that we want to retain the the form factor as much as possible because that is what gets mass adoption. That is what people understand. That's how they're gonna we're able to effectively get the product out there. And 50% feels like a very material progress towards. Uh, plastic reduction. So one, you know, early tidbit that we've been kind of, you know, obsessing over very early on is something like if one percent of the U.S. population switches to Myra deodorant, which is, you know, it's not a small number, but it's not like enormous either. That's equivalent of removing something like a hundred million bags of plastic bags from circulation. So, I mean, and that's only possible because again, you need mass adoption. Um, so. Back to your sustainability question. So to us, sustainability uh, means making dramatic material progress uh, towards making products that are better for you, that reduce waste uh, in some you know, very significant form, but at the same time can actually scale. Small changes make big results. That's yeah, right. That's why you're doing it. 
That's right. That's right. So, uh, so, so, so Earth Day is an important, is obviously very big for us. Uh, generally speaking, it kind of ties well into the theme. Um, you know, we celebrate it every year. We're, you know, thinking about something exciting for this year, which I'm not going to tell you. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, we're definitely, you know, we're definitely pretty excited about just more and more brands that have and kind of share the same um, ethos that are coming out. So um, we're happy to be, you know, certainly thought leaders in the space and uh, kind of driving and, and, and helping elevate other folks around us to kind of do more and educate the consumer. Definitely. We'll keep our eyes out for the launch of Myra on Earth Day. Can't wait to see what's going on. Cool. A couple closing questions for you here. Um, what's your best piece of advice for subscription brands? Best piece of advice for subscription brands. Um, so don't try to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> I, it, maybe that's a little unexpected, but um, a lot of these businesses um, have certain fundamentals that are true. And they've been true for everything. Like if it's, if it, I keep thinking of a phrase, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? So a lot of subscription businesses live or die by CAC, LTV to CAC ratio, and lifetime value. That's it. There's nothing else to it. Everything else is noise. Yeah. So don't try to reinvent the wheel, figure out where you are on those three things, and then try to optimize it and try to understand where world-class subscription businesses are on those benchmarks. It's fantastic advice. Last question for you, what do you subscribe to? What do I subscribe to? Uh, well, besides all of the obvious ones, <laughs> the, the COVID must-haves, right? The Netflixes of the world. Um, yes. Let's see. I mean, the one that is probably, the one subscription that is interesting that I um, subscribed to uh, about, uh, I want to say maybe nine months ago, uh, I'm subscribed to this um, personal kind of stuff insurance program called Echo. And um, it's it really just caught my eye quite, you know, quite frankly, out of blue. But it's basically, it's like an insurance, it, it sort of, it starts out with an insurance plan for your phone, but it sort of extends to anything else. So I'm really into a lot of like biking and hiking. So I have a lot of gear um, and like things happen to that gear all the time. So the the insurance plan, which is on subscription for obvious reasons, is basically on any of the stuff like that that you sort of have. And I thought it was a really neat, really interesting subscription. Uh, and being in this business, I thought that, uh, you know, <laughs> these guys deserve the credit. Very cool. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. I love all this conversation about data. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for having me. We want to thank Greg once again for joining us. If you're interested in Myro, you can head over to mymyro.com. If you're looking for more of our episodes, check us out at rechargepayments.com slash hit subscribe. And to get the latest episodes, remember to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from.